0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual participants and do not necessarily reflect the official position of the host, other guests, or any affiliated entities. Each participant is responsible for their own statements and opinions. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. Turning in this inaugural of High trust world uno setting the stage. I'm your host, El Chaco, and with you tonight, we have got an awesome guest lined up. Ready to talk trust and truth? It's none other than my good friend and former co-host of Here's What I Don't Get, Mister Tab Bert. Tab is a highly sought-after technical expert in the theater world, having demonstrated his skills as a light a lighting and stage designer on stages all across the United States. He's also found solace in his new hobby of glass blowing and is an absolute encyclopedia of knowledge on movies and all things Star Trek. So without further ado, let's go. Tab. Hey man, thanks for being the first guest on on high contact or high trust low contact. I'm going to get that one out of I uh, got to get that one out. Of <laughs>
1: uh, thanks for having me. <laughs> El Chaco. Boy, it's been a while since anybody's introduced me so nicely on a show.
0: Well, you know, I, 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 I wanted to dig into your into your technical background, because I know that you brought it up a bunch of times when we were on. Here's what I don't get. But I think that there's like there's a skill set in there that not a lot of people think about, because, like, you know, I've been in show business. You've been in show business. And there's a lot of prep work that goes into making a show work. And, you know, especially like we were just mentioning off air, uh, you were just telling me about uh, your your private concert with Green Day at one point in time. You want to share that?
1: Uh, Yeah. So a couple of years ago, right after the lockdowns all ended and things were opening back up, uh, Green Day came to Tulsa and I was managing the uh, labor at the arena there in town. And so for two weeks they shut. Well, they didn't shut down. The arena wasn't open to the public, but. Green Day was loaded in and they were checking their sound setups and checking their lighting setups and going through rehearsals. And so we did a couple of evenings of rehearsal with Green Day where I was basically the only spectator in the arena that wasn't kind of directly affiliated with the show. So I I like to joke and say that I saw Green Day in concert by myself and not by myself as in I went all alone, but as I was the only person there. Uh, it was a really, really surreal experience to have like all of this production and then absolutely none of the energy that happens when you have like a huge crowd that's that's there. Um, and that was, it was one of those experiences that I can never articulate for people because then like the next week was so we did two weeks of Green Day and then we did another week where Fish did the same thing and they were they rehearsed silly stuff like green day we loaded out one night we you know it was 10 p.m. the time the show would normally end uh crew arrived and loaded the show out put all their stuff in trucks the trucks pulled away from the building and then they kind of just circled the block all night i guess and they pulled back in the next morning at 8 a.m. and we loaded that same show right back in and and it, you know we're used to it. We've done that kind of thing where we load in a show at the uh, load out a show at the arena one night. and The next morning we're back and we load the show back in. It's usually not the same show, and the show's used to that too, where they load out and the next day they do a show somewhere else. But they're usually not back in the same arena. So, uh, but it was one of those things that had to be rehearsed. They had to know how a loadout went before, so that when they were there out in you know Toronto or somewhere trying to load a show out, they weren't suddenly realizing that. Uh, this stuff doesn't really fit on the trucks the way we thought it was going to.
0: Well, that, those and, are the things that people don't always think about, right? Like, I mean, you just mentioned really quickly there about them circling the block, right? Like, I mean, when you've got, like, these long-ass trucks going on, you can't exactly just, like, park, right? Like, the, a no. lot of those theaters don't exactly have the the proper parking in front of them. Like, when, we, when I was doing the Midget Wrestling Warriors, um, I was the uh, – not only doing Don Chaco in the shows, but I was also the 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 driver for the tour. So basically, I was driving like an RV, and we had a tour bus, like a not, not a tour bus, that was our tour bus. The RV, um, but uh, we had the uh, like a trailer behind us, and we would be, you know, like a couple of places. We we did one that was like a bar, right? Like it was mm-hmm. it was like a bar show, and the thing is, like we had to go in the in the alley, and it, like actually the other thing. I had to take the trailer with me to pick up all the talent from the airport, but there was no way that we could just like stop. And there was no parking spot in the airport for something that long. So we, yeah, we burned a lot of gas, just like just going around and around and around and around. And it's not really comfortable to drive with the trailer, but like, that's the thing is, is that like, um, especially like, for example, like stadium shows and stuff like that, you know, like uh, I was just looking at the schedule in Calgary. And like, so the, the Calgary flames schedule is, is already been released and like, there's concert times that have to be kind of afforded for in that period of time. Like, so when they book those concerts, they're booking those concerts months and months and months in years. advance. years. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. And the thing is like, you have to put into time to like, okay, there's a hockey rink under here. So there's like mm-hmm. ice there. You can't just like chop up and get the ice out. You have to like make sure like, oh, game's over, clean the ice, we're gonna put the boards down and you gotta you gotta move everything out of the way. Like there's a lot, a lot of sleepless nights for uh the people that are involved with those kind of things. But like in your situation right now, um you work in a in a proper theater. And so whenever a new show comes in like walk me through the process of let's say when they book a show, let's say they're going to do like pirates of Penzance or something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if, if you get that ahead of time, like who, who starts with it and how does it kind of walk yourself? Like walk, walk me through the process of like, we're going to do pirates of Penzance and go.
1: So a lot of those, a lot of shows, they start, um, a year before the, so let's say you're going to have a show in September, right? That, this is your big, op- Pirates of Penzance, that's your big opening for your your season. Well, you started talking about that in uh, December or January of the year before when the artistic team, the artistic director for whatever theater group you had, they sat down and they said, all right, what, what's our season next year? What kind of, we, you know, this is our demographic. We need a show that'll appeal to this demographic. We need to have our kids show. We need to do a musical. We need to do a straight play, like whatever you your criteria for picking a show is right. So that's all happening in January and fit fe- and February of, of the year. So you get mm-hmm. all that stuff figured out. Uh, you come around to April, you're ending your season, uh, you know, let's call it season one, season two opens with Pirates of Penzance End of season one, that final show is opening up in April and opening night, you have your big gala or, or you have a big season reveal gala where you say next year, come to our theater, we're going to have Pirates of Penzance. We're going to be doing Matilda, the children's musical. We're going to be doing, uh, you know, Verdi's whatever, you know, and you're listing all the stuff you're going to be doing and everyone's super excited about that. And also about that same time you're starting to call. Uh, designers. you have to call usually your scenic designer and your costume designer, those are the first two. You've got to get them in because you need a scenic design so that you have a uh, you know, a set to, to act on. And I guess before that you have your, you have to get your, your directors in. And so some theater companies, they have like a core of directors that actually work for them and sometimes you contract out. Well, in every case, whenever you're deciding that season, you're, you're picking that director. And then the director may say, oh, no, I don't like working with that scenic designer. I want to work with this scenic designer that I like. So you're getting those people under contracts. And so you're talking about in April, March and April, you're already spending a third of your season budget or a third of for next year on contracting your designers. Because most designers get paid on a 30-30-30 scale or a 30-40-30 mm-hmm. scale um, where – you get 30% of your fee up front right when you sign the contract. That check comes. Um, you get 30% of your fee when you turn in your first set of draftings. And then you get the last 30% of your fee on opening night. Just uh, typically how those are. are on laid opening out. night? On opening night. So like, um, your
0: budget is basically two-thirds up until, yes. right? Or are you guys mm-hmm. running in debt? Oh, wow. Uh,
1: most people are – most people are running off of the check that they had from the show they just walked away from. So opening night hits and I I get paid for this show and I walk to the next theater and start my next show that I've that I've been paid two thirds of already. And I'm hoping that in mm-hmm. a week's time I'll get another the next third. And so you're like constantly chasing that that uh, money train and, and always trying to stay one step ahead of the bills. But um, so March and April, as the production producer, you've spent a third of your your season budget to get those people on board. They're reading the, the play or the musical. They're doing research. They're putting together draftings and you start having meetings and you're probably starting to have your meetings in, in late May and June talking about this September show. And by the begin- first of July, you finalized all of your designs. This is what the costumes are going to look like. This is what the set's going to look like. This is who the stage manager is going to be. These are my like lighting ideas. Um, so about eight weeks out from your opening, you start rehearsals with your actors. And also about that same time, the scene shop starts building your set. So they have about six weeks to build it and then two weeks to load in. And somewhere in that load in time, your lighting designer show, your a lighting crew shows up and hangs your show. So we're talking about somewhere in August, the, in Jul, in July and August, the set's getting built. The actors are rehearsing. The Somewhere in late August, the uh, electricians show up to the theater and hang a light plot. The sound engineer comes in and starts to hang, put speakers where they go if they're not using a house system. The light designer comes in and focuses all the lights. The painters are coming in and painting. Then about two weeks out from opening your – all those elements start to come together in tech week. So you're doing uh, rehearsals with the actors in the set. And then once you kind of got in the lighting and once you kind of got that all squared away, then you start, then you add costumes and you like add bits as you go until finally that like last three nights, you're basically doing the show and probably either to no audience or a very, very small audience of these are my donors. These are my, um, you know, these are the close friends, of the designers that are poor and don't want to pay to see the show. And then finally, right. like that Friday, September first, you have your big opening night gala. Everyone comes in. Everyone's happy to be there. Uh, well, I guess it wouldn't be September first. It would be somewhere in mid-September. But you, you have this big event, and you, and now, and but at the same time, at the same time, all of that has been happening. You're now They're probably. 2 weeks into the next rehearsal process of the next show because rarely do you see theater companies like well they'll do one show and then take 3 months off before the next show they're they've got a show in like 3 or 4 weeks that's going to open up right on the heels of that so you're like in this you're in this constant production and on my side as a designer side I'm I mean even as an audio engineer I'm like mixing this show I'm working on this show and in pre-show I'm working on the next you know, sound plot that I have. I'm writing cues for the next show. I'm lighting. I'm reading scripts for the show that I'm going to be doing in the spring. And you're constantly like chasing, because if you pause for too long, the checks will stop coming and then you right die.
0: And you are going to go out of business. Yeah, exactly. So just so I, I have this clear, so you, you personally will be kind of time managing a whole bunch of stuff at the same time you'll be you know like working on your beats for for the lighting on on one show while at the same time kind of working with the lighting designer for the like you're not like do you work hand in hand with the lighting designer so are are sometimes you the lighting designer like, i know that you've talked about sometimes where you've had to kind of fill in for some of the scene design stuff or not the design but at least like the construction of it is that correct
1: so in my current position i i'm the technical director and so i oversee all the technical aspects of everything that comes through my theater doors. So I'm looking at scenic draftings to make sure that it's going to be something that will fit something that can hold weight of people, something that, you know, I think can get there. I'm looking at light plots to make, to make sure that they like fit within our inventory to I'm looking at scheduling crew to hang that light plot. I'm going through and helping put all that information into a sheet so that the programmer and the lighting designer can then program their console. I'm there to answer questions when they don't know how to use the, the lighting console. So my current job requires me to know a little bit of everything so that I can just constantly be a- answering questions. And And even so right now we're in this renovation, we're totally dark. This is, this summer has been really, really odd for me because I have been basically without a show for the last since June, June was the last show that I did. And, oh. um, basically uh, other than the lockdowns, I have never not been in production. So Ooh. I I've had all, yeah, I've had evenings and weekends and all these things that I've never had in my career before. And now I'm really starting to grow attached to this idea of, oh, this is the way normal people live. I, I like, <laughs> I like being normal people. Um, but even now we had, uh, I had a tour tour. With a theater company that rents our space, they just hired a new technical director that um, has never seen our space before. Their show is in January. They load in January 2nd or 3rd, whatever, the first first day of January that's not a holiday. They load in their Mm -hmm. show, and they came to the theater uh, yesterday, Tuesday, yeah, yesterday too walk Tuesday, um, the end of August to walk through the space and see all the bits and try and figure out how their show's going to work. So, She's... you know, they're they're looking three months down the line before they even walk in the door on this show uh, to to try and solve these problems early on. And so I'm talking about that show. I'm starting to schedule a crew for my shows that are in November. I'm starting to look at light plots for the show that's in October. Um, and She's then we're leaving
0: at the last minute. You're never leaving it to the last minute. Uh, I'm never does, leaving do, it to
1: the last minute. But
0: do shows ever leave it to the last minute? Do you do you, do you end oh, up yeah. spending a lot of like uh, stuff kind of fixing at the last moment and all that kind of stuff?
1: In this current job, that seems to be the exclusive thing that I do. I, as <laughs> as a designer, I've always prided myself on like I always beat my deadline like I um so like I said, you'll when you're you have eight weeks of rehearsal time. You have six weeks of build time for your show. Well, the scenic draftings have to be in two weeks before that build time starts so that the technical director in, in a, I'm a venue technical director versus like a carpenter, technical director, a carpenter, technical director, the scenic designer draws kind of a pretty picture. This is what I want this to look like. And a carpentry technical director takes those drawings and figures out how they actually get built. So the The scene designers to turn those drawings into the technical director so that they can draw the actual build drawings so they can give those to the shop so that they can get built. So I always mentally set my own deadline a week ahead of whatever the deadline is so that if something terrible happens, I, I have a built-in buffer zone or if you send something and it's corrupted, I, I can replace it right away. If, oh, uh, actually, sorry, we didn't tell you all those moving lights you hung in this plot, we had a flood of our basement. They all got ruined. That happened to me in college where our, our, the AC got plumbed incorrectly and our basement flooded and it destroyed all these moving lights we were supposed to have. They ended up getting replaced through insurance, but there was a 12 week period where we didn't have any lights and they were supposed to be in these shows. And then it was like, well, now I have to redraft my whole thing. And there was this panic and, that was what caused me to start thinking it. So when they say something like that, I can be like, well, I've got five X more days. Let me fucking go as fast as I can to put this together and send it to you so that I can, so that I can move on to my next project so that I can keep getting paid. Cause you, I you're, I'm always, it's a train. You're always on this train.
0: That's the sign of a good pro though, is somebody who can kind of like take, take the lead when things go awry. Um, You know, like for example, Uh, I know when we, when we first did Luchando, our first night, like it was, it was, it was really down to the last minute. It was, it was horrifying. Um, uh, when we were doing it, uh, because basically I found, okay, so you said you got paid, you know, you guys get paid like a third and then a third and a third. Whereas with mine, um, ours was a lot of fake it till you make it. Right. So basically I had put out a, a business plan to, um, a bunch of investors and we got commitments from them, but they were only if we got all of the money. So like, basically like we, we needed to raise $500,000. And if we didn't get a commitment for $500,000, then we got $0. Um, but thankfully we, our first investor, uh, had actually committed $50,000. And with that is what I was able to bring in, sorry, a hundred thousand. Uh, and that's what I was able to bring in the wrestlers with bring in the, bring in the ring in with build the set with. Um, so like w- when we came in, we had an empty warehouse. So like w- when I was trying to figure out what, what our setting was going to be, it's not like we were going to do it in a, in a proper theater. It's not like mm-hmm. we were going to be able like, actually one of the thoughts we had was we were going to do it at the, um, at the basketball is not a huge sport here, but it's the number two sport in Paraguay. So the, a lot of the football clubs also have matching base or basketball cl- clubs. And so uh, Olympia has, has the biggest basketball stadium and it's actually where the original wrestling show in Paraguay took place was at Olympia's basketball stadium. So I remember when we looked into it, we were like, maybe we do it here, right? It's already got the stands. It's already got the like speakers. It's got everything ready. But I got, like, strong feedback from my creative director saying we will look like complete clowns if we open to, like, a half-empty basketball arena.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So so we were like, oh, yeah, fair point. You know, I was like, oh, we can fake it. We can do smoke and mirrors. We can drape a black, you know, black curtain behind. And we could do all kinds of stuff to kind of, you know, like, huddle everybody into the corner and only put the camera in that one direction and all that kind of stuff. But it didn't really... It, that was not going to be. So luckily, like the TV stu- the TV studio that we ended up uh, getting our sh- our show originally on, uh, that we had a primetime slot with, they had this like storage warehouse at the back where they kept a lot of their costumes and sets for all of their other shows. And basically, we partitioned it with um with with curtains. So that our back, our dressing rooms were basically, you know, amongst all of the the, the like set design for all the other stuff. And then we had to get built stands. So it was like this like brick wall. And then like behind it was like a little, like the bathrooms were underneath. And then the, and then there was a hallway down through this like little kitchen area. And we had to build the stands down. And I remember like, it was like bit by bit as we were getting closer and closer to the opening night. It was terrifying. It was terrifying because in Paraguay, it's a manana culture. So everybody always tells you, yeah, we're going to get that done. Manana, manana, manana. And I'll never forget. Cause like on opening night, um, it wasn't finished. <laughs> it just wasn't finished. And so like we got the lighting rig put up literally the night before. And we had the, uh, we had the, the stands put in, they were done. And I remember when they finished the stands, and our guys were kind of running through a, a practice run and I was in the stands and I got the first chance of actually just kind of like taking it all in. There's my ring. There it is with the, with the lights on it. This is what everybody's going to see when they, when they come for the very first show and the, and the very first show was actually on my wife. It was, I don't know if it was exactly on my wife's birthday or was the day after my wife's birthday, but like we had a little VIP section And I wasn't actually on the show yet. I wasn't like my character wasn't actually brought onto the show until I think episode two, episode three or four. So the first first tapings, I wasn't on the show. My character hadn't been introduced yet. So I actually got to like watch the show from the VIP booth. And it was terrifying because the thing is, is that like we had two sets of people. We had, you know, like our creative director never didn't speak any Spanish. And then we had a translator in between and we had a guy on a radio headset kind of going back and forth. We had to make sure that they got the music cues and the lighting cues for every single wrestler. You have to know that like when a wrestler comes out, you're going to play his entrance music and he's going to come out and you got to know when to turn it off, right? You don't just turn it off when you mm-hmm. think it's time to turn it off. You got to know the timing for when to turn it off. You then also need to know um, at the end, whoever's going to whoever's gonna win the match. Right. So if you tell them ahead of time, predetermined, this is the person that's going to win the match, you got to play his victory music. Then you also have to instruct them and tell them, hey, listen, um, sometimes things go wrong. (laughs) Sometimes things go wrong. And the guy we originally intended to win the match isn't going to be like something goes wrong in the middle of the match. And you have to kind of call an audible and then you have to know that you're going to trust your, your lighting and your, uh, and your sound people that they'll know that 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 wrestlers win music or that West wrestlers, uh, uh, you know, like to not play the wrong wrestlers music when the guy gets the one, two, three. And so it was, it was super terrifying, but at the same time, like, as we got going throughout the season, it just got smoother and smoother and smoother to the point where everything was perfectly timed. Everything worked out perfectly. I actually prepared a little bit of a, a stage or sorry, a little slideshow that I wanted to show you real quick of uh, some of the uh, some of the some of the things from opening night for us. So the first night we weren't sure if we were going to have a crowd the, the thing about Paraguay is, is that it gets like when the rain comes, you're not going to get like the crowd there. Are a lot of people are coming by bus and if the rain comes in, it, this isn't a, a country that has like proper strain uh, uh, storm drains and stuff for everything. Mm-hmm. So so if there's a big, huge rainstorm, you got no show. Until you have like a completely, totally loyal fan base. So we took this picture on the first night because it was really cool that you can't really quite see, but it's wrapped all the way around the building uh, where where these these fans were coming in for the first show. And then we had the um, like this, this kind of the feeling of anticipation for when the for when the the crowd was coming, because a little bit different from like a stage show all the lights everything's pointed all the direction of the attention is on the stage right mm-hmm. but like in a wrestling show because our uh, this is a hard cam angle right here the crowd is a part of the stage right so it's like we had to make sure that we had the lighting just right so that when the match was going on you could see them and and uh, and and like that they they show up just as much as the as the as the match does And like I said before, we ended up having a uh, just this little like um, this little hallway. And then we would just basically come down the hallway and then turn left. And then that's when the camera would catch you. And we'd have lights set up in the hallway at the turn. You can see the little light switches like uh, over his Mm -hmm. uh, uh, hand here. That's where the bathroom is. (laughs) And so basically, like we didn't open the bathroom up to the public, but like uh, there was there was, you know, uh, porta potties outside. But, like, we had them come and turn and come down uh, the entrances that way. So this is Sully right here. And, you know, it was like if it's Sully coming down, you got to know it's red lights. If it's Spinelli coming down, it's going to be purple lights. If it's going to be, you know, red Dragon, it's going to be green lights. And so they have to know all that kind of stuff because lighting matters, right? Lighting yeah. sets a mood, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you know, if you don't do the right lighting, then it – it it like, I don't think a lot of people really truly understand the value of a properly set stage, a properly set lighting, properly set sound, all those kind of things. Like we had to put a microphone underneath the ring, right? Because the thing is is that like, you know, when when somebody gets body slammed, I want to hear it. I want to, you know, I want to hear that on camera. That's a big deal. And like when, when somebody's punching somebody, I mean, you know, yeah, the punch looks like it connects, but the big thing that makes it feel like it connects is because the wrestler is stomping his foot at the same time as he's delivering that punch. And so, you know, like when you're going in and you're, and you're dealing with the crowd, um, the, the, the lighting setting the thing properly does everything. Because if the crowd walks in and it's this kind of jabroni basketball uh, arena that's like half full and nobody's, you know, it's not it's not set up right. Like it's not your home, right? Like mm-hmm. we have to set it up every time and we don't have to take it down every time. and uh, But like when, when the show got really going, it really made a, a difference over time. And then actually by the end, uh, they loved us. I mean, they absolutely loved us. Uh, it, you know, lighting – it's funny because in, in music, or sorry, in movies, um, I don't think a lot of people truly believe how or tr- truly uh, recognize how much lighting makes a difference and, uh, and the music for, for setting the tone or an emotion mm-hmm. for a scene. So when you're doing like lighting and sound design, a lot of the emotion that the, that the audience is feeling is at your fingertips, Right. Like yeah. it's, it's at your fingertips and that, that's a lot of power, <laughs> yeah. that's, you know,
1: um, uh, I, I also, one of the cool things about lighting is so, you know, when I, I took a lot of light design classes, of course, in college and one of the, one of the first rules that you learn is darkness is not a choice. Like that's the default and that's almost kind of biblical, right? You know, mm-hmm. first there let was there nothing be light. and
0: then God said, let yeah. there be light. That was setting the stage god setting the stage right there yeah
1: well do you know what the difference is between god and line designers god doesn't what? think he's a lighting designer
0: <laughs> he literally designed light he is light
1: anyway <laughs> anyway um one of the one of the things that you learn very quickly is uh, are most directors they don't want to see the scene change right they we need to be over here. Like we're over here in this happy little picnic scene. And then we're going to transition and we need to be like in this intense courtroom scene. And they need to feel totally different. Like you can't just be in the same spot, but also we need like, it takes us 45 seconds to set up the courtroom scene. And it takes us 22 seconds to get rid of the park scene. And so we're going to set the park scene over here on the left. And we're going to set the courtroom scene over here on the right. And you turn on the lights over here on the left for this this whole park thing and then kind of, you know, bring it down as the park scene ends, but not too much. Not so it feels like it's getting sad, just enough that we can, we can get the courtroom kind of up and running so that we just kind of turn the park scene off. And then we only wait a, a handful of seconds before the lights come up in the courtroom so that people aren't just sitting there in the dark going, I wonder what's going to happen next. And <laughs> well, so that, you like, you like also radio. kind of trick people into looking at the right thing or then it trick their mind into into the magic happening of, Oh, what, what that's happening over there. I had no idea. I was so focused on <laughs> what was going on over here. Cause you have the, a literal spotlight that you're shining where, where you want them to go.
0: Well, and, and yeah, you, you, I, I never knew that about the w- darkness is not a choice. I, I really like that. Um, Cause like when I got trained in radio, uh, like, the the, silence is death right Mm -hmm. like you can't have dead air right so if you have too long a period of time with dead air it's like people are going to tune off your station they're not going to listen anymore they're going to think your antenna went down or something like that so there's all it's funny because like we always need something we always need to move on to the next thing it's like basically like life is scrolling at all times you always need something coming up right and and I can see that in, in, in the theater as well. I remember when I was a kid, one of my favorite things, I think I saw it about maybe two or three times. Have you ever heard of famous people players? I have not. So famous people players was like a puppet show, but it was done with like black lights. Like it was like, you know, like, um, people wearing black, all black leotard suit, kind of like green man from, from it's always sunny in Philadelphia, but like Mm -hmm. all black and then they're against a black backdrop, but then like they're using puppets that are all like, you know, like neon. fluorescent neon and they, they pop. And so when you're watching it as a kid, it's like, it's like these musical notes that are like coming out of this, this uh, puppet Liberace's uh, piano that are kind of coming away from it. And it looks so cool. And it was, and it was a thing that like, they always say like, um, you want to get the audience to immerse itself. You want them to feel like a part of it. And you want them to uh, to really feel a part, like, that There's to to dismantle their disbelief, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, if, if in wrestling, if we do something, if our punches look like crap, right, if a slap looks like crap, then you're going to take the, the audience completely out of it. They're just not – they're not going to be able to – they're not going to be able to go along with it. They're just going to kind of – they're just kind of gonna give a give up on the whole thing, and I mean that's what happens a lot of times. Like people grow up and they go wrestling's fake, I'm out, and like they they don't want to be a part of it anymore because they feel silly. You don't want the audience to feel silly that they're that they're in you know trying to enjoy something like that. It's a little yes. different with movies. Um, well, well, I don't mo- think it's
1: what I disagree. I don't think it's different with movies. I think that um I I think that sometimes when a movie is really good. You forget you're watching it, right? You get so engaged with the story, you so you're so involved, you kind of forget that they're not real people. You forget even movies that I've seen a hundred times, like the really good ones, the things that really build nice, like The Thing. I watched The Thing mm-hmm. recently, and it has such great tension. And I've seen it a dozen times, but that scene where uh, Kurt Russell is like testing everyone's blood, and he and he's like, "I know, I know, I'm a human." I right, it's it, it's so intense. And even though I, I know who the Thing Monsters are, I know who makes it to the end. I know Childs is the last Thing Monster and Kurt Russell is the last man standing. I know that. Right. I've seen the movie. I'm st- <laughs> I still get so invested in that. I remember um, this guy, Vic Mignogna, he made a tribute season of Star Trek, the original series to kind of bridge season three of Star Trek, the original series to um, the beginning of Star Trek, the motion picture. Okay. And
0: this is like a fan fiction type stuff. It, like
1: it was, a, it was a fan film series, And but they, I mean, they had, there's been a lot of fan film series and a lot of them, they don't take the time to make it look like star Trek. They they'll build a nice set. They'll, they'll buy the costumes, but they don't like get the lighting, right? He had the lighting, right? He had the, the music, right? He had the way the camera moved, right? It, it moved like a camera in the sixties, which is different than a, the way a camera moves now. And watching that show, there were some times where I would forget for just, just a few seconds. I would forget that I was not watching William Shatner as captain Kirk because his captain Kirk was so close. All the camera stuff was so close. All the lighting was so close where there'd be these moments where I would snap to it suddenly and be like, Oh wait, he's not, that's not William Shatner. And And to me, like, that's the biggest compliment you can give that show. And so, um, Uh, Yeah, you, I think that movies can immerse you. TV can immerse you in the same way that live theater does. Um, Maybe even more effectively, uh, depending on how well well it's done.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, what were some of the complaints about, uh, what was the show? There was something recently where somebody was like, had like a Starbucks in a thing or they're like, had like a watch in a thing that happens all the time. But when people catch it, it sucks. Like it's, it's like, ah, I didn't need that. I didn't need that in my life. But like you bring up about the lighting. That is something that people do not pay enough attention to. I mean, just most normies do not know how important lighting is. Right. It's just, it's so incredible. Like our show was shot almost entirely on like Canon SLRs. Right. So like we had everything on Canon SLRs and I didn't know, like I I thought like, Oh, that's just a camera that takes really nice photos. No, no, no. It takes really nice video and it looks like Mm -hmm. film. And I was like, but then I play with it and it doesn't look like film. And my, and my director was like, no, 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 no. It's all about the lighting. It's, it's truly a hundred percent about the lighting. And like, he took such detail that we had one window. We had one window on the, on the side of the ring that sometimes that the, uh, the The fight would spill out and go by this window, and he would light this window just just to make sure that the lighting was just even all the way through and like he would do things like we had that char- er, one character named Drexel who was the devil himself, and he 'd have these like scenes and we would just shoot them underneath the bleachers and it was just this little like light and it made it look like he was in this like little cramped hell of his own just <laughs> by the lighting that was set up there and it 's so funny because like um, Uh, how often have you watched the movie, the Truman show?
1: Uh, I have watched it. I've seen it several times.
0: Okay. So like you watch it and then like the Kristoff character, he's, he's all about like the lighting. Okay. And we're going to play this song right here and we're going to do this right here. And it's just, it's like a little bit of a, uh, uh, look behind the curtain of a little bit like, go ahead.
1: What's the first thing that Truman sees that starts to disassemble his reality?
0: Is the, the light falling down?
1: A light right? falls. And it's like it's labeled Canis Minor, I think. Um serious. Sirius.
0: Sirius, yeah. Cirrus. Cirrus. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: And, yeah. And you know, that's that's where the without the lighting, the image, the illusion starts to break apart. Well,
0: and like I look at it this way. Um uh you know, for example, like In real life. So I kind of wanted to bridge this over from like the stage life to like what we're kind of witnessing right now in terms of like how they set the stage for the next narrative, the next thing that's coming. Right. So, for example, I remember in the first early days of the Biden presidency. Right. And like it was a little bit wonky and a little bit weird. And there were claims of like, this is not the Oval Office. This is a soundstage because they're asking themselves like, look, man, like they had like within a day, they had all new carpet, all new wallpaper, all new stuff in the Oval Office. Like on the first day, he's in there and he's signing off on his executive orders. And like it was a little jarring. Right, because like you're mm-hmm. just like, hey man, like I thought that was supposed to be like, I mean, you know, give it some time, but no, they had it like immediately because they had to put it, their stamp on it.
1: Right. It's like when you when you you know tune into season one of a show and they had a really really small budget, and then in season two they got that budget increase and they had all summer to kind of work on the sets and fix the little like bits and bobs and add some more stuff on there. That's so you go from you know like this the classic example in in Star Trek the the Next Generation there's this mm-hmm. tea pedestal that sits behind Picard's chair. And in season one, it's just like beige. And in season two, they they drew some black lines on it as if there's some panels that you can pull in and and like futz around with little bits. Makes all the difference though, right? Yeah. It, and I it's it's one of those things where I didn't notice it for a long time, but now it's one of the things, it's one of the visual cues I use to catch is this season one or is this you know, season two onwards or do those panels exist? And it does, it turns it from this like, boring thing that's behind his head to that's a that's a spaceship that's a spaceship right yeah
0: well and i think that like that's why they're doing a lot more of this stuff where like i really appreciate one of, one of my favorite movie experiences of my life and i think i mentioned this on our previous show but one of my favorite experiences in the theater of my entire life and it's not my favorite movie by no means is it my favorite movie but was the first time i ever saw jurassic park right? Mm-hmm. So the very first time I saw Jurassic Park, it blew my mind completely. I mean, it was like, it was something else. It was completely immersive. It was the first time I ever saw like one with like Dolby digital surround sound. So like hearing the the, the T-Rex kind of behind you and kind of coming in from the side and stuff like that, it threw me off. Like that was, that was really big, a big deal at the time. And then the same thing is, is that like, you know, I remember I came out of that. I was like wondering, like, how did they do this? Because like, CGI wasn't really a big thing then, and they yeah. were wise about their CGI then because they didn't overdo it. They used a lot of practical effects that were, you know, like they used robots and they used puppets and they used all those kind of things. And it makes
1: a difference. And they only they only showed you just enough. They they didn't they didn't go too far. Was, oh yeah, here's here's the brontosaurus all standing up and look at how great that. All right, now we gotta get back to because if you. If you if you look too too far at it, you'll see kind of past the curtain and start to go, oh, this looks like crap. And yeah, they Hollywood has lost that like that subtle hand that sandwich like sand, They would do sandwich shots, right, where they they do like a close up right of a big robot T Rex head, and then they go to a wide, mm-hmm. and that's a CG, and then they come back to that close up real quick, and just enough to okay, I, I see all the all the stuff. Jurassic Park is a phenomenal movie, and it's. Um, Tim and I Tim the other one of the other co-hosts on here's going to get Tim and I went and mm-hmm. saw Jurassic World uh Fallen Kingdom I think that's the second one and we went and saw okay. it in 4D and you know 4D you went and saw Jurassic Park in 1993 And and had this amazing immersive experience, right? We went and saw Jurassic world fallen kingdom in 2018, 2019 or something in 4d super immersive in these chairs that rocked. And there was like (laughs) smells and they were shooting. There were strobe lights. There were strobe lights to try and accentuate like the taser shots, but instead of being Mm -hmm. pointed at the audience, because that would cause a seizure, they were pointed at the screen. So all they did was wash out the screen and just remind you of the fact that you were watching a movie and, I knew it was not going to be good at the very beginning because when the logos were like fading in and they kind of, they kind of swayed in the chairs just rocked for absolutely no reason. Uh. And I, I I started laughing immediately and, and I was like, I, I'm trying to theoretically, all this 4D is supposed to immerse me in the movie. I'm supposed to draw me into the movie. And none of that is as compelling as just having a story that is really, really exceptionally good.
0: Well, that's a thing like this. I, I, I told you before the last the last um, superhero movie I thought I, I saw in the theater was the original Avengers movie. Yes, Right. And I saw it like that. I saw it with like the, the, the wonky seats and doing all that kind of oh, stuff really? like that. And I didn't enjoy it. I thought it, I just didn't have fun. I didn't enjoy it. And then like everybody's like, oh, I can't wait till the next show. I'm like, really? Like, <laughs> I guess, you know, like
1: See, uh, I had the I had your Jurassic Park experience with that. Uh, Mm. because Tim and I trucking and tucking a bunch of our other friends, we went to an all day marathon. They started with the Iron Man from 2008 and they played all of the Marvel movies that had come out in order. And at midnight, we saw the 2012 Avengers film. Okay. And it was, so there's a moment in there, right? Where they have defeated that first Goliath, that big flying monster thing. They've taken it Mm. out. It was, and then. And there's this like huge cheer and the crowd went crazy because we had been engaged in this world for the last, we started at 10 AM. We're now 14 hours into our day. We are so engaged with this world. Like we cheered, we're excited. We defeated the Goliath and then two more come out of the portal in the sky. And you would think, you would think that we had all collectively seen our grandmother murdered on the stage it was in front like, of us. Oh. All, yeah. No, it, there was no sound at all. All of the air was sucked completely out of the room, and I have never, I have never felt that way in a crowd of people watching a movie ever again. I never felt it beforehand. I never felt it afterwards because, I, you, there's just, it was that perfect time, right? Smartphones were new. We weren't all dicking around on our phones. We were all. Right watching movies for 14 hours we were engaged we were there to be to see that movie and that's my Jurassic Park moment that's the movie that I walked I I walked into that movie not really a Marvel fan I had seen a, I had seen a, a couple of my like Iron Man I walked mm-hmm. out of that movie excited to see the next one because i had had such a great experience Interesting. And but were the seats had, moving the seats weren't moving okay it was so just me- a movie
0: yeah. So for me, it was like a ride. Right. So it was a ride. And every time that they were getting into an action sequence and stuff like that, I started being like, man, I don't want to move anymore. I just want to eat my popcorn. I just want to like <laughs> enjoy this. Right. And like um, one of the last movies I saw in the theater, because I, I don't go to the theaters very much anymore at all. Um, I remember early, early on. And here's what I don't get history when, when I was doing the show with uncle Buck, um, I I was really hard against the Star Wars series. I hate Disney Star Wars. I I, just, I hate everything they've done. Every yeah. minute of footage they have put together, I hate it. Every single one of it. And but like for a piece of time, I was like, I watched a Rogue One like uh, ripped Rogue One video at my house, and I was like, you know what? Actually, oh, I I enjoyed a a little. The exception is Rogue One. I enjoyed a little bit of Rogue One. You have to put your brain into a box and just kind of let it, like, you know, let people enjoy things. Like, that whole thing. Let people enjoy things. But I went to go and see it in the theater because I wanted to see if it still held up. Because I kind of liked it at my house. I wanted to see it at uh, at the theater. And I went to one of those theaters that, like, is, like, all posh and, like, you got the lean back chairs and all this kind of stuff. It's like, you, but I liked it because all of a sudden I was like, okay, I can just relax I can just relax and, and immerse myself into the movie because there's nothing worse than like I don't know back in the day. There's still theaters I'm sure out there that if you get stuck in the first three rows, like you're screwed, like you're totally yeah. screwed because you're like too close. You just can't get into it. I don't even know why friend, they built those seats
1: there. I had a friend who had that happen during uh, Oppenheimer. The new they got they were oh, really? in uh, yeah they, I I think it was literally row three, and they said that they're they spent the whole movie looking up at an angle and they walked out and their neck hurt and they did yeah. not enjoy the movie. And I, <laughs> and I said, yeah, that's why I don't go to the movie theater anymore. I've got a 75 inch screen TV. I've got a really nice sound system. I'll wait for it to come out on DVD.
0: Yeah. What's the point? What's the point? Yeah. Like I, but going back to it though, a little bit, like the main thing that I did like about the movie theater was the audience. Uh, yes. Being in the audience, so like, um, I I don't know if I've told the story on on the other show or not, but like in that in that experience of Jurassic Park, so I'm in line to go see the movie. Just like those kids were at the Luchando thing, we were lined up around the building, and we were going to go see Jurassic Park. And now I I don't like know if you remember it very well, but it was you were really young when I, I didn't see it. it was on
1: VHS. So, right. My my I early memories of that movie are you know four three on a tube TV, but even, right. even that because it was good to say to say the immersive that movie could have been made with claymation. It didn't need CGI. It didn't need robots because the story is so good. It, you, yes, you could you buy it. You'd buy it if yep. it was a man. If it was a man in a stick, you'd buy it.
0: Well, and like so, like for there's sometimes like the you had to be there moment. You know what I mean? Like that, the you had to be there. Right. And so, you know, that's one of the things that I love about wrestling is if you see it live and you're there when a big moment happens, like it'll change you. Like it is a big deal, right? Like, I mean, when you see a swerve, when you see, like, we talking about sucking the air out of the room, like we had two, three, four, four different, um, what we call, uh, turns. So, a heel turn is when a baby face, a good guy, turns bad, and then a uh, um, a face turn is when a bad guy turns good. And we only had one face turn in the whole show, but we had, I think, two heel turns. And um, the 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 first heel turn was it's it absolutely it absolutely sucked the air completely out. No, we had three heel turns, but it sucked the air completely out of the room. And like, you could, you could just cut the tension with a knife, the betrayal that was feeling in that room. But like, that's the thing. And when you set those emotions in place, so like, you know, when I go back and I try to look at like Spielberg films and I, I try to look at it from, with a critical eye, not on the man because I don't really like the man, Steven Spielberg, and um, uh, I don't like all of his movies, but the ones that he did, he knows how to make you feel, he's a real emotional yeah. wizard, and so he you, was, you know, like, was yeah,
1: like, because his modern stuff lacks depth, I think.
0: Interesting, well, like, I saw somebody do a really good breakdown on how perfect okay so going back to stage setup blocking the concept of blocking is is a very big thing so you know in the wrestling world for example if we're going to do a major move and it's being televised for for an audience at home you got to make sure you do it in the part of the ring that the camera will see it right mm-hmm. so it's like it's a really important thing you got to make sure the referee is not in the way you got to wake like i me as a manager on the outside of the ring, I got to make sure I'm out of the way, right? I got to make sure everybody sees it. I go in when it's my time. I stay out of the way when it's not my time, but like Steven Spielberg's, his blocking is phenomenal. And there's actually a show. I really want to get my hands on. It was a BBC show from the seventies starring Patrick Stewart called I Claudius. And apparently Mm -hmm. I Claudius is, is, is one of the greatest shows that the BBC ever did. And the whole thing is basically set up like a stage play, right? So it, 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 their stages, like BBC did not have an endless budget then. And so yeah. all of their shows were shot in studio on these little sound stages. And the, the director of the show had that it factor on blocking. So he knows when to like zoom in on somebody's face. He knows when to back out and track the person walking along the room and having, you know, sometimes you're tracking somebody and the guy's walking, but like, like, for example, like the, in the empire, like uh, the, in star Wars, right. When the emperor and the, uh, and the, and Darth Vader are walking, how that is set with the camera about when they're walking in front of all the stormtroopers, it really kind of adds that like, Oh no, like these guys are really like they're organized. They're, 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 they're they're militant. They're ready to go. That's the thing that Spielberg had. And so going back to like that moment, I, I mean, prior to, Jurassic Park, the first one, not a lot of people know this, but the, the trailers showed nothing. There was nothing. There was no, we got nothing. We got no, we never saw a single dinosaur on the, the trailers. All you saw was that, that famous logo of Jurassic Park black with the, with the, with the, with the, the the, the yellow and the red. And that was it. Mm -hmm. And so when we were waiting to go into this movie, we had no idea what we were going to see. We didn't, we didn't even know we were going to see a horror film. And I, so I, I mean like, or a thriller, I mean, whatever you want to call it. But like, I was there, I was with my, with my best friend, Jeff, and we were in line and we spotted two girls that we went to school with Jody and Justine. And they were cute girls, but they were kind of like the, the nerdy hipster girls. Right. And like, it was like, you know, like, Whoa, we know you, Hey, we know you. And then like, Hey, come, come with us. And they cut the line. They come with us and like, Hey, we're going to sit with Justine and Jody. This is great. And like, we get into the movie theater and we sit down, we get great seats. And, like, I, I'll still remember, like, looking over at, like, the, the girls' reactions to the show, too. Like, Jodie had her legs up. She was just, like, she did not want to look the, at, the, at the screen at all. She was terrified. And that's the thing that that movie did. It had jump scares, but it also had that, like, uneasy, like, lingering, like, oh, crap, something is going to come at any moment. Like, yeah. you know, just, just the whole idea, like, the power's out right? The power's out. We don't have, uh uh-oh. And then it's like a cut to like, uh uh-oh, the fence is broken. Uh Uh-oh, you know, like the wire fence is now now broken. It's like, uh uh-oh, it got out. And so like it had this tension building and building and building. And that's the thing even in the wrestling world right now is missing. And when I get Sully on in a a future episode of this, we're going to talk about that because the thing is, is like, You got to tell a story, and you said yourself, like it's it's about storytelling, it's about character building, and that's something that's missing from a lot of the movies.
1: So you sent me a couple of weeks ago, maybe a month ago, you sent me um, some stuff about Hulk Hogan facing Andre the Giant. Yeah, and yeah. and I had never seen it. I had never oh. never seen it, and so Absolutely. it's like an ele- it's like an eleven or twelve minute match, right? And I have no right. best interest in Andre the Giant or Hulk Hogan, <laughs> right? And and I watched it. And and it, I was captivated, right? It was yeah. It was a really interesting match, and 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 of course I know it's fake. And and I think I think part of part of it, it before you sent me the full match, you had sent me uh, some interviews of people video. talking about the match. Yes, and then I watched the match, but it had that great tension. They were telling a story. There was something there that was more than just um. They 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 weren't just fighting and in wrestling today, I I don't, I don't claim to be an expert about wrestling, but I've been uh, backstage at wrestling events. Mm -hmm. You know, that John Cena is not going to lose, you know, he's not going to turn bad and you know, he's not going to lose because he's, it's too safe. It's a very safe thing. And, and that's fine. And the audience likes it. So I've worked WWE several times on crew in the arenas. And I remember the first one that I did was in 2012 or 2015. And all I did was load in.
0: Okay. Yeah.
1: Loaded in. Loaded out. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I had no, no vested interest. I, I went in and did my job and I left. Okay. But then in 2021, I did, I was, I was, I wasn't on crew. I was managing the crew. I was, I, I was the steward. and, I was in a position where I could kind of watch the show and I hadn't been able to watch the show before. And I was watching the show and I'm, and um, so let me preface that story by also saying I, I work, I've worked in live music for my, basically my entire life. My dad's a musician. He's been mm-hmm. playing out live since I was a kid. I've helped him load in concerts. I have seen him play a thousand times and I would see him play a thousand times more. I, I've seen him play to a huge uh, VH1 live out onto television in front of a giant crowd in downtown Tulsa. I've seen him play in mm-hmm. Battle of Bands across the country. I've seen him play in a to a dinner setting with a dozen people, myself included. And every single one of them was the show that was just my favorite show I've ever seen. That's um, awesome. And so I I've worked in live music and I, and I work with this guy that I've become very close friends with. um, And, and he's a, he's a, he's from a different world than you and I, he is a very excitable, interesting guy. And, and I love working with him because he can kind of see past the veil. He sees not what it is, but what it could be. And he will feed to what it can be. So he won't, he'll live with what it is, but he won't say, well, this, is yeah, this is what we are. We're just this little shit band. (laughs) He wants it to be what what he can see in his mind. And so he really pushes the people around him. And we've had all these conversations over the years about energy and in live music, this energy where you're playing and the audience is there and they like feed into the performers and the performers feed out in the audience. And there's this like, tangible energy that flows from a crowd and a performer and i haven't seen it as much in live theater as i have in live music and i think because music like engages our brains in a much different way but i have seen it in wrestling so i'm standing backstage at wwe and i'm i'm watching these wrestling matches quick, happen quick and question I, was it a
0: tv taping or just a house show
1: i don't uh, I think it was a t- it was a TV taping. It was a TV taping because okay, okay. we okay. I only know that cuz we charge in a different rate when it's a TV. <laughs> <taping>. <laughs> so uh, I but I was I'm standing there kind of in the wings where you, where I can't be seen but I can kind of see what's going on in the ring and I get, I also I've loved my whole career. I love watching the audience. I right. I've seen the show a 100 times most of the time. I have not seen the audience. So I like kind of being peering around, especially those big moments in the show. And I like to kind of look over and see where, Oh my God, this, this, the plot has changed immensely now. And I like to see those reactions on people's faces. And so I'm, I'm, I'm very much like I'll sometimes when I'm not at a front of house position, I'll find a place where I can see the audience from my, from a vantage point in the wings because i like to feel that energy and i i could see that watching wwe these yeah everybody knows it's fake it's it doesn't matter it's fun it's fun just let people have their fun and they they engage with it and it's it's really i i left um the the first wwe i did in 2021 i left that kind of being not a wrestling fan but i got it a little bit more than i had before because i didn't get it before it's uh it, it to
0: me it's it's one of the last great American live uh it's it's a lot like jazz. Okay. So a lot of people don't realize it, but it's a lot like jazz because the thing is is that you have to read the room. And if it's time to change the tempo, change the tempo. And if it's not time to change the tempo, or 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 like we'll change the we'll change the ending of a match based on how the crowd is reaction reacting. And like when you when you talk about how you plan out your theater schedule, we had our entire storyline mapped out all the way from the very first taping all the way to the last taping. And it changed a bunch of times based on fan feedback. And so like <clears throat> we had the, the, the story of Luchando is the story of a guy named Blas Benitez. And if he spoke a word of English, I would have him on the show in a heartbeat. But the thing is, is like the the story of Blas Benitez was he was um we started we actually when talking about staging setting the stage for what it was we made a big deal out of doing publicity before our first taping so we actually reached out to like the paraguayan cultural association the paraguayan sporting association we held a press conference and then at the press conference i'm there and i'm int- i'm the owner of the company i'm introducing these people we brought in from you know from abroad what we did is we seated in in that press conference where I was a little bit more complimentary to the north american talent than I was to the local guys just a just a little bit more complimentary like p- putting them over a little bit more than the others and so what we had is finally the one guy like snaps at the press conference and we have uh, in paraguay they the one of the popular drinks here the most popular drink here is something called tereré and tereré is It's yerba mate tea, but it's like served cold. So you put it in like this little metal cup and you pour your ice water over top of it. And you've got a metal straw in it with like um, a filter at the bottom and and you sip it out of there. So we actually had one of these sitting on the table. And then like as this thing was building up and you could see and we'd have the camera just pan over and just like look at the faces and the guys are happy, happy. And this guy's like a little bit off a little bit off. And so finally we had him snap and he gets up and he gets pissed off. And he, and he sh- throws this t- Tero like mate onto the, onto the North American wrestler that we brought in. And um, we had, so that North American wrestler that we brought in Scotty Mack was our top baby face. And we played him up as our top baby face. He's this blonde hair, blue eyed guy. And we put him on this on, on like front and center on everything. But then <clears throat> What we did is um, we had Blas Benitez come out and interrupt his match and just like shout at him and stuff like that. So we're planting in everybody's heads. This is the bad guy. This is the bad guy, right? And he, he's, he's upset. He doesn't want – why are you giving him more, more opportunity than me, blah, 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 blah. blah. And that's when my character came in. My character, Don Chaco, was in the VIP booth. I like the, the cut of your jib. I like the fact that you, you want what you want, and you're going to go and take it. So I hire that guy up. He's my first wrestler to my group, the Dynasty. So we bring him up on stage and everybody's booing because I just insulted the crowd. I insulted the crowd by basically playing into the stereotypes. My first Mm -hmm. thing I do is I I'm in the VIP booth. The guy, the announcer comes over to interview some of the actual VIPs. We had some like Paraguayan models that were famous here in the VIP booth with me. And I just snatched, the microphone from his hand pop over and uh, go up on the stage and the the security goes to stop me and I bribe him. And then he lets me go up on stage. Right. And like, these are all things that people know to do. You bribe all over the place here. But the fact that this foreigner is doing it and taking control of the show and has no qualms about it is fine. Like, sorry, it is, is not going over well with people. They're really mad. So I go up there and I say to them, I'm, I'm going to, I'm here to buy three things you're I'm, I'm here to buy your, um, your cheap land, your cheap love and your championship. Right. And, and I'm going to buy your best wrestler. So I call up this guy who's the best wrestler in Paraguay and he's on my team. And then I go and I get Sully, who's the biggest guy in the company. And then I get the best, uh, uh, uh female wrestler in the company on my side. So now I'm, I'm stacked. My team is, is unbeatable. I'm the, I'm the Goliath, right? Like we're, 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 we're the unbeatables. And we cheat and we do all types of stuff and it never works out in our favor, but slowly, but surely our first heel turn was Scotty Mac. Scotty Mac didn't think that the, that the, that the crowd respected him enough Scotty Mac didn't think that they, that they, uh, they didn't think he didn't think that they were cheering loud enough for him. Right. And so he's a bad guy now. And then I've got my bad guys. And then we get to, we did a tournament all the way up to this, uh, to this title match. And in the very first title match, uh, it, it's, my two guys were the top of the tournament. So what we did is we basically made it so that it was, it was my guy versus my guy, but because it was a Paraguayan versus an American, I then took the time to say to my Paraguayan guy, like you did good. You did good. You know, a like, great job. Like, you know, Paraguay's never had a, uh, a champion in this country, but uh, tonight neither. I need you to take a dive, <laughs> right? Like I need you to take a dive. And, uh, you know, so, so the thing that I, uh, I did as I made it so that I could, um, get that, that audience to feel. And when we were writing the the lines for this thing, right? Like the, 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 the go home line on this one was, so it was, it was passed to me. It was like, you're going to say, and you're nothing but a stupid Paraguayan. And I looked at that and I pushed it back and I was like, no, I'm not doing that one. And they're like, why that'll get the heat. And I'm like, it's the wrong kind of heat. It's the wrong kind of heat. And he's like, why not? And I'm like, well, could, yeah, they're going to hate you. I'm like, yeah, but we're also going to be broadcasting this in El Salvador, yeah. in Chile, yeah. in Bolivia. They might think Paraguayans are stupid. You know, I don't say I don't think Paraguayans are stupid, but they, they might. And I don't want to play into that. I need something that resonates with everybody. So I changed the line simply to you're nothing but a stupid employee. So do what I say and take the dive. And so his face turn was him. Popping me. And it was the first time we saved it the whole time. The first time I got punched was by that guy. The crowd went bananas. They went absolutely berserk. So we had this first match, and it looks like he's gonna win. He's just like, I mean, what like it's it's basically where Sullivan has this this chain that he uses as as his weapon. We've knocked down the ref because like a a ref bump is, is key to to, to doing something. The ref's got to the the ref in wrestling has the best job ever because it's like he, 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 he loves his work so much that even though he's been knocked unconscious, probably has a concussion. He still finishes the job and gets the the three count. Right. (laughs) But so, so we had it. So the, basically Sullivan goes to get his chain, goes to hit boss. He gets hit. Bloss reverses it on him. He pops him down. Sully's down on the ground. It's now over. He's going to get the uh the three count, but the ref's still out. And in comes Scotty back, the guy who was the the heel. He comes in. And he's still got a beef with Bloss. And Bloss still has a beef with him because of the beginning with the pub with the with the press conference. He super kicks him. Out he goes. I go, I grab up. I like and the crowd is now just like air has been sucked out of the room completely. And I just kind of. Saunter into the ring, kind of looking to make sure it's okay. I grab the chain. I wake up Sully. I give him the chain. I go and I wake up the referee. Sully comes over, pops him one more time with the chain, pins him, pulls his tights to make it even worse. And then one, two, three, and we win. And the crowd was livid. Absolutely <laughs> livid. But I'll never forget because we went through, and that was midpoint in the season. And then we, the rest of the season was chasing the the big bad, chasing the dragon, all the way to the end. And we got down to that final, final, final match, where finally, Bloss. Got the contract because, like, I was trying to prevent him from getting the contract to get it, and he gets the contract to finally get the chance to fight Sullivan again. And the crowd was legitimately—I mean, you said like people know it's fake, but they're like, but but you 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 broke our hearts before, you could probably break our hearts again, yeah. and so like we had it in the thing where I I come in to interfere and it gets reversed, and I get splashed in the uh, in the corner by a big 450-pound man, and I fall out of the ring, and then they carry on for the rest of the match. And I'll never forget it, because I was laying on the outside of the ring. I had my Don Chaco hat on. I had my sunglasses on. I had it just tilted over my eyes, but I was able to look the entire time at the crowd. And while I'm looking at the crowd, I'm watching the emotion on that crowd, because I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking to myself, on this journey that we came on, all the way through the, the, the fact that I almost didn't have this show happen. The fact that we, we, we went through so many adversities. We went through, we, we were on our third TV station by the end of it, but the, like, cause we kept going and we we're trying to get those sponsors to keep it going. But I'm, I, when it really came down to, it, I'm watching for the fan's sake, I'm looking up the crowd and I, it was the most emotional moment of my entire creative career. I'm watching the crowd go. I hear the, I hear the, uh, the one, two, three, when Blas Benitez finally gets the win over Sullivan and the crowd, not a single face, not a single person in the crowd wasn't crying. They were just pouring pouring tears and just so happy. They were partying for hour, like over an hour afterwards. We had the the whole thing set up with pyro and like, you know, confetti comes from the cr- this thing and he goes into the crowd and they're carrying him, And it was just, it was so magical. And the whole thing came about because of proper b- character build. Now you brought up about how uh, John Cena always wins and like, that's safe, right? That's safe to make Blas Benitez lose earlier on. That's not safe. That was a risk. Yeah. And then and then on top of it, you you, you we have in w, like in WWE now, they, they have what's called 50-50 booking because they're trying to asset manage as much as they can to make sure that like, you know, you don't make anybody look too strong or make anybody look too weak. And so if there's a guy's having a feud, this guy wins this week, that guy wins the next week, and just back and forth, back and forth. Whereas going back to Andre the Giant and and Hulk Hogan, they played up the whole thing that Andre the Giants never lost. And, hog- yeah. and, and like, even though he had been body slammed before, they played it up like he's nobody's ever been able to slam him.
1: Well, there's, then- there's, that, there's that moment in that Andre the Giant Hulk Hogan fight. This was this is, I think, where I came around watching it for the first time. Right. Right. He's, he's being he's being like uh, Cobra bear hugged, bear yeah. hugged by yeah. Andre the Giant. Right. Yeah. And, and the life's the, going the- out of him. The life's right. going out of him, and the crowd is like, like is chanting his name, and the uh, the the uh, referee takes his arm and, le- and lifts it up and lets it go, and it, it droops. Yeah. And he yeah. takes, it picks up and lets it go again. And on the on the thing, they're like, oh, if he doesn't come out of this one, they're gonna call it right here now. And he pulls up his arm and lets it go, and Hulk Hogan's arm stays up. And I was like, yeah,
0: yeah! <laughs> <laughs> and on, and, and it, and it drops too. Years he, later. his elbow yeah. goes down to like here, and like yeah, yeah he comes back up with it. That was a spot that Hulk Hogan stole from uh, Dusty Rhodes, but like Dusty Rhodes never got that reaction, like not to that level. And like, think about it. was, it about was it.
1: fun. It's fun. It's captivating. It's, it's drama. And that's what people love. Like, do to not to, I don't want not to turn this around on you, but sure. uh, do you feel like you were manipulating the audience in the story that you were telling? Absolutely. That was the point. Yeah.
0: That was the point. And, like, we had to. We and we did it, and you ha- and it's it's a it's a science. You can't go too far, you know, like because they'll just turn off. There's there's what we call heat, right? So like, like as a manager, my job was to be a heat magnet, right? So uh, go back to that that um, go back to that Andre the Giant match, and he comes out with with Bobby the Brain Heenan, right? Mm-hmm. Now normally Bobby the Brain Heenan is like involved, like he'll like he'll do something that'll like. He'll interfere or do something, but not in that match. Cause that was a big fight feel like he comes in a suit, he comes in a white suit and he comes out, comes out to the ring with them and stuff. But keep in mind now, this is the thing. A lot of, a lot of people don't realize is like how bad Andre, the giant was at that. Like his condition the was so bad. Yeah. He could barely stand right. Like that bear hug moment was written in because he couldn't do anything.
1: Right? And Hulk like, Hogan Hulk Hogan is like standing on his tiptoes to try and keep yeah. him from yeah. having to bend too much like yeah that was that watching that whole like the behind the scenes and watching that match that's that's theater man that it's well, it's a different venue it's a different shape of stage but it's a theater and um, I, I you know I personally I've come around on that on wrestling as an art form to yeah i would I would not scoff at the opportunity to work in that
0: realm. I think you'd be fantastic in that realm to be honest with you. I think you I think not only do I think you could be a good manager like myself, but I think you could also be a really good wrestler, you know like I think you know like <laughs> i said this to you before i i sent your glow your your glass blowing photo over to my to my buddy Sully and i was like yeah man i think he's like six two six four i think he could i think he could work he's like yeah i could train him
1: <laughs> so i i want to i want to hyphenate that by the discussion which led to that conversation happening because trucking and tucking my one of my tim and trucking and talking my two best friends in the world yeah and uh we went down this whole rabbit hole trying to figure out exactly how tall John Cena is because we both ran into John Cena backstage during WWE, like face to face. Excuse me, Mister John Cena. I didn't see you there, kind of right. thing. And and not just not just trucking the tucking and I, but many other stagehands and everyone said the same thing, which was John Cena is shockingly small. Yep. Yep. And yep. So our guest was somewhere around like five, six. Maybe 5'8. No, he couldn't be that slow as well. Yeah. All the stuff says that he's, he, all the stuff says that he's six feet tall, but he's actually 5'10 and says he's six feet tall. And so we're going through all these like pictures of him next to other celebrities trying to figure out exactly how tall he is because like we, I've been face to face with the man and he doesn't come to my chin. Weird. And so, and so I was, but I reached out to the only person I know who knows anything about wrestling. And I was like, what is going on here? <laughs> and that was why you sent the photo of me to someone else and said like, Oh, nice. guys. cause you said, Oh, we'll, we'll bill on a six, seven. And I was like, that's, <laughs>
0: that's crazy! Is crazy. Well, see, this is the thing. So, so like, you know, it depends on how mo- mobile the guy is, right? Like it depends on how mobile the guy is, but think about it this way. You can, in theory, put three inches of foam underneath two, like one is safe. Two is pushing it three. You're like really pushing it. Mm-hmm. And then inside the boot, you can put another, two to three inches of a lift inside the boot as well. So you're oh. basically like walking around like kiss, you know, <laughs> like, like.
1: So I, the CEO of the company I worked for in Tulsa before I started managing the stagehands. Yeah, he was an actor and he was not a tall man. So I'm six 2 I'm mm-hmm. like just straight up. That's how tall I am. And right. I've never I've never taken pride in being tall because I think that that's it's weird to be proud of a thing that you have no control over. Right. And so um, I, I had worked with this guy outside of the company that I ended up working for him for for many years. And I had never put together that he wears lifts. But one day he came and sat in my office and he, the company was going was changing management. And he was staying in charge, but we were changing like corporate structuring stuff. And he mm-hmm. wanted to come down and be like, ah, oh, you know, I'm just one of the guys down here in the tech office with all you like hourly employees who are normal guys. And I'm sitting there talking. He's, and so he's doing the thing where he kind of like perches on your desk, you know? Mm-hmm. And so he's perched, he's perched on, I don't think he's perched on my desk. I think he's perched on my coworker's desk. But he kind of perches and crosses his legs. And when he crosses his legs, I saw the lacing of his shoes. And I realized he's wearing lifts. He wears lifts 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because and, and and even with his lifts, he's only about six feet tall just to be that six feet tall because he's an actor. He's always been uh, an actor. And right. he had to have a double hip replacement because he could not live with being five foot eight or fo- whatever the height was. It's and the I male equivalent
0: understand- of a push up bra, right? It, it's it male is exactly the push up bra.
1: And right, it's so. just it's just to create a facade. It's one thing to create a facade on stage. But like right. he's trying to create a facade in his real life of being a tall guy. Nobody cares.
0: <laughs> Nobody Some cares. Do, apparently, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, and, no, and that's that's the thing. Like we have this character that we're contemplating bringing back for nostalgic purposes, which is like the mummy. And like we're like when it got put on our desk, we're like, you know, like the, we got to find a way to book this guy, the mummy. And it's like, it's terrible. It's a terrible gimmick. It doesn't work out well and everything like that. But it's like, well, you know, how do we make it work? If we have to make it work. So it was like, yeah, we got to make this thing as tall as can be. Let's take our tallest guy, put the tallest lifts in it, make him as tall as possible. And they're like, well, it'll cut down on his movement. I'm like, great. He's a mummy. I don't want him moving a lot. I want him standing in the middle of the ring and just being like, you know, like hard to move around.
1: Making moaning noises.
0: Yeah. Well, and yeah. it's it's really weird, though. Like, yeah, the. Um, I had, uh, I got to meet, uh, the ex comedian, Owen Benjamin at one point in time. Right. And like the guy talks about it all the time about how tall he is. And I'm not, I'm not saying he's not tall, right? Like, I'm not saying he's not tall, but he, he builds himself as like six, eight or six, seven. And it's like, I've been around people who are six, eight, six, seven. You ain't it. Right. Cause like, you know, six, four tops, six, four tops. Because the thing is is that like I look at my own photo, I'm six feet on the button. Like right like, you know, just like I'm six foot and like a half an inch, right? And like I I know I know my height and and like I'm standing next to him and I've I've been around like I had a cousin who's six foot I think he's six foot five or six foot six. And like the height difference wasn't like that. Like and like actually my height came to a disadvantage in wrestling because I can't work with shorter wrestlers because I make them look small. Mm-hmm. right? Yes. So I have to work with big guys. I have to. If I work with a small guy, I can, but I got to spend my time far away from him in the ring so that nobody gets that, like, impression. And when I come in to talk to to talk to him, I bend and I like, you know, I, I shake his hand. I'm like bowing down, you know, doing something to play with that height.
1: That was the craziest thing in the WWE filmings that I was working on was that um, I can't show this because you know, audio format, but um, there, the, there were backstage ring girl. I don't think they're ring girls. Um, th- They were like post interview girls. Right. Okay. And, yeah. yeah. Very, yeah. very attractive women. And so yep. they had all these like backstage areas set up, right. They have the mm-hmm. arena. The arena has the, the, the ring. It has the like big video wall where they walk out of their, their, yeah. Their area but then yeah. backstage in the back hallways they have a couple of different areas set up for post show interviews right uh, i guess i don't know what the difference is between them but the women were all extremely attractive and all of them not flats. a one of them flat yeah they're all wearing flats which is yeah. really odd because i've you know most women in a in those kinds of settings they're in some kind of heels, so they're all in flats which is kind of odd but yep. there was one that I, I walked past the backstage interview going on during the show, and she was standing. You know, most people stand with their feet kind of shoulder width apart, a you know, nice, comfortable level. <laughs> she was looking like at frame She was an A-frame. Her, she was almost doing the splits yep. so that her head was just a few inches below the guy's head mm-hmm. so that he looked like a bigger dude. And I was shook. I was shook. <laughs>
0: Well, and see, the funny thing is like when I worked in midget wrestling, I remember when I came to short sleeve Sampson about it and I was like, Hey man, you know, I think there's a fit. Right. And like I pitched it to him cause I was like, you know, I, I worked with him on a couple of other shows. We really hit it off. And I was like, you know, man, I, you're going to be in Calgary and I'm moving back to Calgary. And when you come to Calgary, I'll do shows with you there. And cause he liked what my work and I was like, and at first I was like, but like, I'm like, t- too tall than all these other guys. But then we realized we're like, no, that's
1: perfect. That makes it better.
0: That's perfect. Cause you want them to look even smaller, right? They, the smaller they are, the more money they draw. Mm-hmm. And so the, and then on top of it, if I'm going out there as a tall guy and we had this, we had a spot all the time where like I interfere with, with Samson and he pops out of the ring and he chases me around the ring and it looks hilarious it looks hilarious and every time i'm like cowering and doing all this kind of stuff like that to 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 these guys it works out great and it 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 you know so it's set and setting it's all about the, the the pacing the staging the blocking and all that kind of stuff but it 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 turned out really well in the end but i wanted to kind of like i know we're uh, an hour and 20 minutes into this thing and i wanted to just kind of loosely kind of play what we know about setting the stage about presentation and see if there's any thing that you're seeing now in like the news that is like, mm-hmm. you know, kind of being prepped ahead of time. Cause like one of the things that I, I, I like to say with my wife is like, you know, we're not prophets, We're just kind of reading the, the reading motions. The yeah. yeah. And like, you know, I, I was able to call it like in Canada, I was able to call it at, to the month, to the month. We, we, uh, made the decision in May announced to our friends in June got ready to put the house up for sale and sold the house in July and moved down here at the end of July but I said to everybody and they were like oh they, they lifted all the restrictions and there's not going to be any you know like it's, it's over and I'm like it's not over it's no. not over at all they're going to bring it back in the fall and it's it's just going to be all over again and then I said we have to get out now while we still can, while I can still fly. Right. And they're like, Oh, they're not going to block you from flying. Like no, no airline would ever like block you from flying. I'm like, it's not going to be the airlines that are going to do it. They'll, they'll, oh, they'll be the muscle. I just, they're not.
1: You. No, I, I, think, was the I think the airlines would do
0: it. Well, no, no, but they, but the the thought that they, we had was that there would be one airline that wouldn't, and there'd be another one that would, and you just pick the one that, you know like you could fly on yeah but like i was like no dude it's gonna be across the board by the yeah. government they're gonna be like well our hands are tied the government told us we have to do this and that was gonna be the way it was gonna go and it was to the month to the month they announced it at the end of august it got put in in uh it got like soft put in in september and then it was hard put in in october and that was it. it and it was and it was in there for months and months and months and i remember i was devastated Devast Even though I knew it was coming, I was devastated. The reason why I was devastated was being because- right. It's no, no, it's not about it's, that. It's
1: it sucks so much being right, man. It sucks so much being right. I about those kind of things.
0: Yeah, absolutely. about
1: about everything. I hate being right all the time. It's it's my biggest. <laughs> it is my biggest, um, personal. It actually it causes me self loathing that my ability to be right about things and to call them, to call the shots ahead of time, it causes me self-loathing because I would love, I would love to be a stupid idiot that is wrong all the time. that's like, Oh yeah, right. they're going to bring back the pandemic for the 2024 presidential election. <laughs> what a big dummy. He was, what a big dummy <laughs> tab is. But then that, but now they're like, we might need to bring back masks for the fall in 2023. And I'm like, yeah, oh,
0: why, 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 well, and, why, but you can see the pacing, you can see the pacing, Yeah. right? Where was the first time I heard about it? Somebody shares with me a video of Alex Jones telling about some like tip that he got and uh, nobody wants to give him credit. I don't enjoy, I don't enjoy getting any information from Alex Jones because I can't share that with anybody. I can't, I got to take it with not. a grain of salt. That's right? the
1: thing, right? So he's saying he's saying mass mandates will be back late September. Even even if he's right, even if he's right. Right. I can't t- go to walk into my my work and be like, hey, check out this Alex Jones video where he said that this was this was from mid-August when he said that by October 1st, we would be back in mass. Check that out. And then like, You watch Alex Jones?
0: No, no, no. He was no, right. No,
1: but, or you're not listening. Yeah, yeah. You're not listening to the thing.
0: And that's the thing is it? so then what happens is you get what's called like push polls, right? So this is something that like I think his name is like Frank Lutz or something Lutz he used to do all the time. And it's like if you want So polls are very important for setting the stage for something. Mm -hmm. It's not gauging the public's opinion. It's pushing the public's opinion because you're making it seem like you're making it seem like everybody else thinks this one way. And you're like, well, that doesn't sound right, but like, no, but look at the polls, and then like the way they frame the polls. So they'll say, like, for example, it's like, you know, I saw a poll. It was like, you know, in, in uh, Vancouver or it was British Columbia, and they're like, a third of British Columbians want to bring back the mandates, and it's like, but two thirds of them don't, <laughs> right? Yeah. Like two thirds of yeah. them don't, and like you're you're just you're just not you're well, not. The Raving way they do polls. The way that it would be.
1: Polls are a scam too, because the question is the question may not be, Chaco, do you want to bring back mass mandates and not letting people go back to work and you can't go like to the grocery store once a day? That's not the question. The question is, would you support more stringent? Would you report support going back to measures to prevent the spread of disease? It's something so vague that a third of people are so stupid that they'll say, well, I, I don't, I don't like disease. Yeah. If, if there's something we could do to stop disease, I I'd go for that. And, and then there's a third of people that say, um, no, fuck you go jump <laughs> off a cliff. I hate you. Then there's a yeah. third of people for whatever reason say, uh, gee, I don't know. I I yeah. don't know. And then there's 10 it's always that of third.
0: People, it's the mushy yeah. third that they, that they're trying to move. Then right, there's
1: so, 10% of people that say, I won't accept your polls. Please stop contacting me. And those are the people right. that we have to support.
0: <laughs> yes. But, the, okay, it's, I've seen it where it's like they'll, like, post a hypothetical. They're like, well, if a more dangerous variant were to hit Canada. <laughs> yes. Right? And then, sh- lo and behold, like, after the polls come on, go, a, a new ver- there's been a new case, a new case in Winnipeg. Oh and no! You,
1: oh no! And then they take it as like a a commitment. You said you said that if a more dangerous one came, you'd yep. do it. And now it's here. And if
0: you're against you it, may... you're some sort of a horrible person, and you don't care about grandma, and you're a conspiracy theorist, and and like you know, that's such a powerful wizard word to say. You know, like it just it shuts everything down. Oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. It's Ain't over. Pay no attention you know? to it's, the man it's... behind the curtain. Exactly. But like you see these certain things and like everything is a photo op, everything is set up. And so the the name of this show is uh, high trust, low context. It's going to take me a while to even memorize the name of my own show. But like one of the things, and this is a question I really wanted to ask you, and I'm going to try to ask every, every guest that comes on the show at this stage in your life, who and what? Do you still trust?
1: Uh, I, I trust on my family, my Yilmath. math is the word. Um, I When Truckin' and Tuckin' and Tim the Handlebreaker and I watched Fast 9 for the first time, this is going to be a really weird story, but please bear with me. I'll let you go with it. When we watched uh, Fast 9 for the first time, the ninth movie in the Fast and Furious franchise, um They introduce John Cena, who is a wrestler. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It's all tying together. It's all tying together. I I swear this makes sense at the end. I trust you,
0: man. Take on field. Uh,
1: I'm not talking. I'm to your listeners. Your listeners are probably going to say this is this is insanity. This man is insane. (laughs) So if you're still around at this point, (laughs) there's John Cena. John Cena is introduced as Dom's brother, who is working for evil. So we were having a great time. We were doing our movie nights. We were drinking and, and carrying on. And one of the fun things of, of our movie nights is that we were kind of riff tracking. We would make fun of the movie. It was happening. So of course, if you've watched the fast and furious movies, Dom Dominic Toretto, he believes in family. So if his brother you, you is don't the say. evil is the evil twin, he must believe in yield math, which is family backwards. and so the whole movie every time john cena comes up if we're not playing the john cena interest music for our own entertainment we're like joking about (laughs) how he believes in yield math but fast (laughs) forward a few years and i needed to find i've i've worked i've worked in theater my entire life and a lot of i've worked with a lot of employers that tell you we're family and i hate that like i've been interviewing for some new technicians and I will not say that our crew is family. Now, do I believe that my crew is a tightly integrated unit of people that care for one another? Yes. Is that a lot like family? Yes. But I will not say that my crew is family because, in my experience, when someone says, Our crew, is, our, our business isn't really a business, we're more like a family. What the person is doing is they're trying to exploit you. They're trying, they're trying, to, trying to trick
0: unearned loyalty. It, it pers-
1: yes. You nailed it. You nailed it. They want you to, because if something happened to your sister or your brother or your father or your mother, you would drop everything to absolutely help them because absolutely. that's what family is. Yeah. But there's something, there's something beyond family, right? There are those people that, that are like that. We have those people in our lives where we would drop everything because they're family, but they're not biological family. So I created right. this. I started to adopt the word of Math, my family backwards to describe these people that if Tim, the handle breaker, something happened to Tim, the handle breaker, there is no force in the world that would keep me where I was. If Tim wasn't there, because, he is the closest thing to, a have to a brother that I have in the world, having no biological brothers. If something were to my friend trucking and tucking, I would not stop to help him. I, I, my, my mentors in my career, um, they are to me as strong as a biological family member was. Some of them are like, secondary fathers and that comes from someone who has in the greatest father in the world and i'll fight you if you want to argue you know i'm not one of the there are a lot of guys that will say that with someone's their surrogate father because they had a shitty father like i have an amazing father but i still look to some of these men that i've had as mentors in my life as additional fathers because they are were the right age demographic because they like depose something onto me. So the things that I trust in this world are those people. And I had a much larger group of those people five years ago. That group has really thinned in the intervening years as we've learned the true honesty of our friends and our brothers. And I'm extremely, extremely fortunate that two of my brothers before that time are still there. A, a lot of them are new. A lot of them are like their secondary yield Math. They're they're like second cousins, right? Where I love them, I trust them. I'll take care of them. I, I'll I will do my part because I am compelled by my honor to do it, but Hmm. I don't know if I trust them the same way that I trust him and trucking and tucking and my dad, like those, those are the three, those are the three men in this world that when the time comes to put a gun in someone's hand to watch your back, that's who I'm putting a gun in their hand. And that's my level of trust. Like that's, that's the line. Would I arm you to watch my back. And it's a weird line and it's something that's hard to explain to people who aren't gun guys, who aren't family guys, who, but that's my like insane conspiracy, paranoid brain, truly honest level of, of who I would choose. And El Chaco, I would count you among those. The only reason why I wouldn't put a gun in your hand is because (laughs) I don't foresee a world where, you and I are in the same geographical location to fight the globalists. You're
0: speaking too fast you're, 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 You don't, don't count out Paraguay just yet.
1: <laughs> uh, There's, you know, there could I, be a I, time. I don't not see a world where I live in Paraguay someday, but.
0: Um... <laughs> it may not be Norway. I know you want to go to Norway, but like, you know, I would, yeah. you, you would have, you would have, uh, you would have a clean bed and have some access mailman. to our food and all that. Yeah. You'd have, you'd have, you'd be taken care of. And, yeah. and it's interesting because you bring up about the people that you, you, you bring up about the people that were in your tight circle that weren't afterwards. And I feel like after all of us have kind of come through this trauma and it was a trauma, it's still a trauma. We're still kind of not wrapping it. our heads around what exact, what exactly is happening and has happened. And it, it's, probably going to get worse before it gets better sorry but it is but i was saying that this i was talking about this with my wife about even just the concept of trust and how you almost have to learn how and when to distrust before you can learn how to trust and coming through what you did and you had your friends that you thought were tight and then they showed their true colors they did you a favor. And they did you a favor because in the end you have a better idea now of what areas of distrust you were lacking and where you can poke holes in those things. Because like you gotta learn how to be able to who to trust and how not and like who not to trust. And See, and go
1: ahead. I think that's I think that is one of my major failings because I'm um I'm Despite being a very like close and private person, I have this, I have this, you know, hymen of trust where once you're kind of through it and, and there are levels, there are levels inside of there, but yeah. I'm, I'm very quick to build a bond with people. Yeah. And because I, I want to live in a world where we all look out for one another. And so a high I'm trust very, society. I want to live in a high trust society. Yes, I, that's where yeah. I want to be. And so yeah. I just keep putting myself out there. I just keep saying like, ah, oh, maybe this time will be different. And so it, it's almost a personal failing, of, of probably trusting the wrong people. And so like I, I can see it in my head, in my like logical brain. I can see that I am maybe making. Poor choices of associations and trust and yield. You're manner.
0: learning. You're still learning, man. Like you're still you're still yeah. compiling information That's about fair. people. And like, for example, um, in my in my conversion story, like when I was coming back to the church, uh, when we were first when we were first moved back to Calgary, I, I grew up in a different Calgary. Calgary was a very different place, and you know it it demographically was different. It economically was different. Uh, and it, it just in general was a different place growing up. And, and one of the things that I always like, and, uh, when I, when I think of a high trust society, I saw a video the other day, it was a TikTok video of this lady in, I think she was in Maine, some small town in Maine. And the video is point of view. You live in this small town in Maine and it's this lady, is this, uh, this blonde lady walking down the street and she comes up and there's a stand. And on the stand is a bunch of different potted flowers and uh, they're for sale. And there's a jar on the, on the stand and it's got money in it and you leave some money and you take a flower and you go and you walk away. And now that seems so like fake to, to most people. Like when you live in the city and you live in these different places, it seems so outlandish. It seems so staged and fake, but those things are real. I've absolutely, I've seen entire supermarkets. I've driven into places where you go and there's like a farmer's market, but the farmer's market is literally at the edge of the farmer's field. And he's got a stand set up and he's got tomatoes and he's got cucumbers. He's got all these things and the prices are there and he's got a thing. And you just leave the money that you, that you gave. And it's on an honor system. And the thing is, is that that is achievable again, but like, we're not going to get there. We're not going to get there under these circumstances. And like when I got back to Calgary, because like when I was growing up in Calgary, uh, the, the moment things changed for me, and I'll probably bring this up in the series over and over again, but the moment things changed for me was when I had to lock my bike. So when I was a kid, um, I, I had an a, a elementary school. I had two elementary schools we could go to. There was a the Catholic school and the public school, and I went to both. So I started in the Catholic school and I ended up switching over to the, to the public school. But when I was, so my parents would trust that we could walk all the way. It was like a 10, 15 minute walk to the school by ourselves. And I did it. I'm like, I think I was like in the second grade or first grade when I was like walking myself to school and like, you know, walk all the way and there's cars that come along and all, all that kind of stuff, but it was safe. And you go walk to school and then to cut down on the time I would bring my bike. And then you'd take the bike and the bike had bike racks and very few people actually locked their bike. Like the fact that anybody, it was, it was a time where actually it was almost like cool to have a bike lock because not everybody had a bike lock, right? Like it wasn't necessary. And so you just put your bike on the bike rack and then go into the school. Like who's going to steal a bike from a child in a school? you come back and out and you day. take the bike and you go home. And then I switched over to the public school system. And at a certain point in time, they, the city started a new initiative. And it's this idea of like learning by osmosis. If you put a high, if you put low trust people in a high trust society, maybe they'll, they'll turn into what their surroundings people. are like. And it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way at all. So they put this group home for 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 uh troubled kids across the school schoolyard from us. I'll never forget it. The two there was there was um, there were three kids that were in my grade that came in. I forget the girl's name, but there was Lee and um oh come on. Harper. Nah, just I forget. I forget his name. There's Shit. two of them the two of them and they were bad like we had bullies and we had like fights and we had all those kind of things but we didn't have anything like these guys right and and these guys came and it was like everything changed like i was in grade 6 and like i remember i used to there, you know those panini sticker books like that like come out like so panini uh, sorry i don't panini's a brand and so what they would do is like you could get sticker books of like hockey teams or it was like, think of like, like trading cards, but like stickers, okay. right? And you get these yeah. packs of the stickers, you open them up and you got the teams and you put the guys on each of the, uh, on each of the, uh, the teams. And I used to collect the uh, NFL football ones cause they had like foil ones and cool. Was there ones.
1: a particular I, team?
0: My, Just my team when I was, uh, no, it was, it was all the teams, but yeah, my, my favorite team was the New York giants and, um. I know I liked Lawrence Taylor before I knew what kind of a person he was. So uh, another wrestling
1: tie in. Sorry, I should um, guess. And yeah, I love the New York Giants. <laughs> I ended Boy, up liking the Arizona Cardinals
0: later because I hate myself. No, I uh, I ended up. So I was I, I would like shovel walks and save up money and do little chores and save my allowance. And I would spend on these stupid panini sticker books to try to collect the whole thing. It was Lee and Craig and Craig was the other guy. And I remember one day Craig comes and he sees that we're going to trade in these sticker books and he's got a full one. We're like, Whoa, wow. And he's hawking it to sell it. So somebody buys that one off of him, and they got the full one off of him. Two days later, he comes back. He's got another full one. I'm like what is going on with Craig stealing them? He was stealing them. He was stealing them from our max, which was our convenience store. It was nearby. And he wasn't just stealing those. Like he was a clown. And so like what he would do is he would steal condoms and he would fill the condoms with, with snow. And he'd tie them up on the, um, on the, he would climb up the basketball uh, pole and then uh, tie them under the basketball hoop and then hang them down. So basically you're shooting baskets would come through this like gauntlet of like frozen condoms. And, Mm -hmm like we didn't even think about or know what condoms look like at that point in time, all of a sudden, like this evil is coming in and, and like, uh, and then all, and then the girl, she would like offer to show people her boobs for money. Like this is grade six. And like, this is like, like nobody had boobs like this, but this this was like a public school. school. Yeah. And then, and then, and then Lee, this was the guy who was in my class. So in my class, he would, once he showed up, all of a sudden people's stuff goes missing like from their desks. So like, if you had like a nice, like I had this like pen and it was like one of those pens where you could like click a thing and have the different colors, like green, red, black, you know, like, yeah. yeah. And it just went missing and I had it and I liked it. And then he was using it. And I went to the teacher and I was like, Hey, like clearly he's got my thing. She's like, you don't have proof. You can't accuse him. And it was this weird thing because before those guys came, before those guys came, there was enforcement of the rules. And then slowly when these guys came in, right, all the things that we would get in trouble for, these guys weren't getting in trouble for. And they used to do these like um, aptitude tests, you know, because like, uh, you know, there's different places, like, they, they have the GATE program, the, uh, we had Ed Plus, and we had a few things, and, like, in order to get, kind of, picked to go into these programs, like, you, it depended on your aptitude test, right? And I, I my parents were, you know, we were uh, offered, like, I was in Ed Plus at the, at the Catholic school, and then when I came to the public school, they had sort of a system like that, and then they, they were trying to say, like, you should be going into this other system, but, like, I don't know, I, I wasn't like an achievement a, a, an achievementaholic, but I would say this, like I thought um, these things were important. Like I wanted to, to, to show th- what my aptitude was on these things. And we would be trying to write this thing. And this Lee guy would just be shouting out, A, C, D, C, A, C, D, C. And he was like clowning around, throwing this thing up. He'd go up to people's things and sh- throw their tests off. And the, t- the teacher couldn't do a thing. Just couldn't do a thing like he kept getting punished but not really and you'd be thinking to yourself yeah. like, when are they going to suspend this guy when are they going to do something about this and so he stole my pen but then another time i had my bike lock key in my because i ended we ended up needing bike locks and i got the u-lock thing mm-hmm. And this was before the internet so i didn't know about like you know the pen trick or anything <laughs> like that to like open mm-hmm. these things at the time but like it went missing and I'll never forget it because I'm there on a weekend with my dad and a hacksaw, sawing through your lock. Own lock. It took hours. It took it took so long to get this thing because it was such a tough metal, and we went went through it finally. And then, like, my dad didn't yell at me or anything. He didn't, you know, he didn't give me a hard time or what. He just went with me, and we got it done. But uh, you know, when I was growing up, like, if you went to a friend's house,
1: can, sorry, can I interrupt? The, so I'd yeah. like to tell a story about stealing in elementary school because oh sure sure I and and it's a great dad story too <laughs> okay um and it's, it's 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 it stayed with me for a very very long time the story it's it's uh, I, I think feel like it shaped who I am as a person but um when I was in the fourth or fifth grade I was I got a watch for Christmas like a a nice Timex watch. It was probably $20 or something, you know. Yeah. It, oh, that had a stopwatch on it. It did. It did. It had yeah. a stopwatch. It had an alarm. It had Indiglo. It had, it had all the stuff. It had yeah. all the stuff on it, right? And it was this cool watch. And something I've learned since elementary school, I have an allergy to nickel. Oh. So if I wear a watch with the stainless steel back, especially a cheap watch with the stainless steel back, i.e. a Timex, I get mm-hmm. these terrible rashes underneath my, my watch. So like I'm wearing this watch right now mm. and I don't have a rash because I now buy, well, this I, so this, this is on a NATO strap, but this uh-huh. is a composite back watch. Okay. I only wear composite back watches or glass back watches now so that I don't, cause I have these, these horrible, like round rashes on my wrist. Interesting. And so, it, it, it. so anyway so i'm in elementary school i have this nice watch i like it i want to wear it but i have this terrible rash on my wrist so i take it off during the school day and i put it in my desk just in the edge of my desk i'll put it back on before the end of the day put it in the end of my desk go to lunch come back watch is gone and i was just dist- i was devastated it's a loss of innocence you know, yeah it's, it's a, that what it's it really deal. it really was the the end of my time of thinking that you could just put you, I can just I can just put my watch here and 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 it'll be fine until I get back. And uh and so I had to go home and tell my dad like the the watch is gone. This watch you got me for Christmas, my birthday, whatever the occasion was, it, it it's gone. And my dad told me he didn't he just he said don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff. And I have lived with that lesson for probably 20 years now. That's a,
0: that's a good, t- I teach the same thing to my son. I always say, you know, I don't say, small stuff. I just,
1: yeah, I just say it's, 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 it's stuff, you know? Cause what's it's your, like, what's your dad, you know, you're hacking through that, that bike lock. Yeah. How can he be mad at you? You didn't do anything. I, you, you put the key in your desk where it should theoretically be safe until you need to get the key again. Where else are you yeah. going to put it?
0: That's where what else I are you going to put the watch. Safe. Maybe yeah. in my jacket pocket, but like, I didn't, I didn't think anything of it. Yeah. And it's funny. Cause like that cascaded, it just cascaded. Cause when I was a kid, if you know, like this isn't smartphone times, this isn't times where you, you didn't call ahead of time to like, go. you knew where your friends were. All the bikes were on the front lawn, so if the, yes. the everybody's if everybody was like playing like Nintendo or something, you'd know where they were because all the bikes were a pile were on of the, front, bikes front, in the lawn. front yard.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because you just so rode up, up, you just rode up, and you did the thing where you stood up on one leg and just let it, exactly it let, let it go on its distance. own. Yeah, I, I had we're gonna go. I Nintendo. had a BMX, I had a
0: BMX Shogun bike, and uh, the. It had the original seat and the seat was cracked. And if you didn't ride it right, that would pinch and it would rip your shorts. <laughs> and I had like two pairs of shorts ruined by it. So I got good at just kind of riding, you know, like kind of half standing, you know, mm-hmm. while I was riding it a lot. And I only sit down like for bits, but if I'm going to pop up, like I'd be careful. And so I always remember that. And I had specific stickers on the bike and I knew exactly which was my bike. And I would come home and I'd put it in the backyard or I'd put it in the shed. Yeah. And then it got stolen. Yeah. And it got stolen and I, it sucked. Cause it was like, I was already growing out of the bike, but it was like a good bike. And I could have given it to my brother or something like that. And later on, like when I was in junior high, we went to a different like community for, our, we had to bus to this community to go there. And I'm there, and I used to play this game called uh, – it was an SNK game. It was a like total ripoff of uh, Street Fighter II called World Heroes. And we used to go to this uh, 7-Eleven at lunchtime, plop our quarters in, play each other. And there was this one kid who came in, didn't go to our school, and he would come in, and he would just kick our asses at this game. He was just like this total M. Bison knockoff guy. He would just like cheap shot you all the way through. And so like we learned like, okay, just select that guy and beat him. <laughs> Yeah. So I I finally did that. I, I, I finally beat that guy and I had like a you know like a yeah moment, right? And uh and then he just changes to another player who has some other cheap way of winning and he ends up beating me. And my friends laughed at me. And then we get outside and we're walking out and we see this guy get on the bike, and it was my bike. It was your bike. It was my bike with the seat taken off, but it had all the stickers.
1: And he didn't beat And I death. couldn't
0: no, but I couldn't catch. He never, I never saw him again. Cause I was like, that's my bike. And I never saw him again. And the thing is, is like, I remember when I was thinking about it afterwards and I was like, I knew the community I was in, the community I was in for, we were in a nice community and then we were bused to a rougher community. Mm-hmm. And when we went to that rougher community and they were, they, the, the, um, I remember I met so many other kids. I had this one kid I brought over to my house for dinner, like for, you know, to come hang out. You know, I met him at school came over to our house, I ha- got to have dinner with him. You know, he had dinner. And we, I thought we had a great time next day. We go to school and the guy absolutely hates my guts and is absolutely just like hates my guts. It was a complete betrayal. Had no idea what happened. And what was is he was jealous. I had a happy family that tr- loved each other and treated each other. Right. And he didn't. And you can clearly tell he didn't. And, i realized like that kid who stole my bike oh i don't think he stole my bike because he would have he would not have been able to get all the way to my neighborhood to go and steal his dad stole the bike or his dad bought it or his parents bought the stolen bike from somebody else and his situation was different than mine because my stole my bike got stolen and then later on i ended up getting another bike but like like you have to kind of put those things into perspective and be like okay like this is the real world. This is what it's like. And this is what we're teaching our kids, unfortunately, is like, this is what you got to get prepared for, kid. You know, tough, tough shenanigans, you know, like you're going to have to get out there and and, and you you're just gonna have to get used to this stuff sucking all the time. And it's like, First no, I refuse trees. I refuse. And that's why I took my my family and we live in rural area and we know our neighbors and we get to know our neighbors. And it's important to know your neighbors. And there's a, there's a book, there's a no, no book called culture of critique by a sociologist named Kevin McDonald. And in it, he talks about how like a lot of European cultures are high trust societies because of winter, right? Cause if you don't trust your neighbor in a lot of these places you're living, like, I mean, I'm, I'm from Canada. I grew up in Canada. My ancestors came to Canada. My ancestors they came to Canada and then they settled in Canada in harsh conditions. They built up their ranches, they built up their 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 properties, they built their own houses. They they made it through, and the only way they made it through is by trusting their neighbor and getting along with their neighbor. And like you know, there's other cultures around the world, so it, such as like um, Norway,
1: very <laughs> place, yeah, yeah, and that's the richest nation on the planet, but things have changed in the last 25 years i wonder what but
0: <laughs> but I, like
1: i can't i couldn't even begin to explain no. I've, yeah i've never been there so crapshoot. yeah know?
0: but like it, what's interesting is is like this concept of you bring up about your uh, M- M- mlf what Ke- was it? kevin mcdonald Yilmath. Yil math and like um the uh the, the thing is is that um Don't, don't order that on Amazon. You'll get it put on a list. (laughs) But um, but, uh, the, the, uh, the thing that I was going to say is um, he says, he brings up about other cultures, especially those who let's say have arranged marriages. Right. So if you have an arranged marriage, a lot of times it's like this family and this family are wanting to combine the families. It's like a strategic endeavor. And like down here in Paraguay, I know full well that like, I have friends, I have, I have colleagues down here. I mean, I have lots of Paraguayan friends. I also know, don't bother inviting them over on a Sunday for dinner because they're with their family and their family is large. It's cousins, it's aunts, it's uncles. It's a big deal. They put a lot of stock into family, but it's not a high trust culture. Those families are together because those are the only ones they know well enough. And they, when they talk to you about everything, they tell you not to trust anybody. And so the, the thing is, is that they will stick up for each other. Even if uncle Tom is a, is a, is a crook, they'll go to bat for, for him. Cause snitches get stitches kind of thing. And yeah. they will, they will, they will back up a person who's dishonest and acting badly. So when I was in Canada, in, in Calgary and this, everything had kind of changed. I said to my wife, I was like, man, I don't, I don't get it. We are not getting Like, it's hard to connect with people. It's hard to like, you know, like our kids playing with their kids. It's like really hard. When did that change? It changed when we went back to the church. It changed when I had my conversion. Because all of a sudden, when I went to the church, it was like, yeah, we choose to be here. We choose to be here. And we have a similar value system and a similar belief system. This works for us. So what ended up happening over time is like, I have this really great group of friends that I'm in contact with every day on Signal. And we post things to each other and we inform one another and we stick up for one another. And like, you know, we would do these things where we would do like a, a, a work or a worker be when we were getting ready for uh, selling our house. I put a call out to them and all of a sudden 12 guys came over to my house on a mor- uh, uh, in the morning, not to help me move, but to help paint the entire house and to like help dismantle furniture and do all kinds of stuff to like get the thing ready. Like we had to paint the fence. We had guys doing the drywalling in the in the garage and all that kind of stuff, and we had it done by lunch because there was so many of us, and it was great. And these are the kind of things that like you choose your community. So in a lot of those European uh, cultures, like if you don't trust your neighbor, if your neighbor is a total crook, you're not going to help him when the when the, the the winter comes and he needs help. You're not going to bail him out. You have to learn how to trust one another. And the low context part of this show, low context is direct communication. So there's high context and there's low context communication. Low context means you don't have, it's not reading into body language. It's not looking into, you know, like saving face all the time. It is okay to tell somebody, Hey man, I'm not buying your BS. It's not, it's not working on me. Like you gotta be straight with me, be straight with me. And that's one of the things that you probably like with a lot of your friends is that you can be honest with them. You don't have to be like, like talking around them or anything like that. Like you, a lot of people bring up about how like men and women are very different and how they communicate. But a lot of these, like a lot of that is biological. A lot of women will gossip, right? They'll gossip. They'll tell a lot of those things. But the reason why they have to do that is because in a, in a society where you have to trust one another, if they're picking a partner, then you need gossip. That guy's a drunk. Don't go with him. He's a drunk, right?
1: I, if you you know like you gotta,
0: yeah. But, they save face by talking to each other and uh, they save face because they don't want to make it like a direct thing because if their husband dies in battle or if their husband gets run over by their, you know, by an ox cart, they need need each other to bail each other out. So it, it serves a purpose. And so I guess the, the thing that I'm going to, going to kind of pursue with the show is I really want to ask a lot of people who do you trust? How do you trust them? And how do you, how do you foresee Getting back to that, is that dead or is it not dead? And can we possibly, you know, come around at some point in time? I think that there's I think there's a way, but I haven't quite figured out that way yet. And I think that if I talk to enough people who know things and have good experiences about certain things, then maybe we can kind of scratch the surface and figure out what it is that we need to do in this society where we can't trust the news, we can't trust the media, we can't trust our teachers, we can't trust our politicians, and we can't trust each other in a lot of ways. And that, I think, is something that, like, either we're going to need some sort of monumental event to take place that'll change everybody and reset everybody, or we have to work on it internally and kind of balance that out and put it out into the world and how to trust people. And I think that like, there's a lot of stuff to, to gain from that. I've, I've been, you know, I took my, my degrees in economics, And one of the things that we studied in economics was game theory. So in a future episode, I'm probably going to talk about how they they've done uh, all types of studies on game theory. What are the winning strategies like the prisoner dilemma, how to win the prisoner dilemma? And it's not the way you think. And that and it's really interesting how those kind of things play out. But I should probably leave it at that because we've done a really good two hours here. And I think uh, this is a great way to start the show. And I, I and I chose you as my first guest because I trust you. And because, and because it's one of those things where, um, you know, if you're going to come and you're going to start something and setting the stage for how this is going to go, Hey, who better to to start it with than somebody who I, exactly, exactly. So this has been high trust, low, low context with El Chaco. I want to thank my guest tab Bert for coming in here. Thank you all for joining us, being a part of this. And on that note,
1: ciao, ciao. Hasta luego.